The first reading is taken from the book of Isaiah chapter 5, starting with verse 1. I will sing for the one who I love a song about his vineyard. My, love, my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and I, it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 29 through chapter 12, verse 2. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. There's a custom in many churches out of respect for the words of Jesus, to stand for the gospel, and we do that here. Please stand with me. The gospel today is taken from Luke, 
chapter 11, beginning at the 49th verse. It's Jesus speaking to the crowds around him. I've come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Then he said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret the present time? Why don't you judge for yourself what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm always reluctant to, uh, to preach without praying, so please join me. Father, I pray for your help today. No instrument of yours that speaks is perfect. And it really doesn't matter much what the instrument says, but only what you intend to be heard. And so I ask that by that special gift of the Holy Spirit, the illuminating power that reveals the truth of Scripture, you reveal it to all of our minds, pushing away anything that was an error. Bring it to our hearts to move us and to our wills that we might obey, so that in all things we bring honor to your name. Through Jesus who redeemed us, we pray. Amen. Uh, July 23rd, in the edition of The Economist, which for those of you who don't know it is a British news magazine, there was a feature article entitled Heat Waivers, Heat Waves, a harbinger, heat waves, a harbinger. And it, then, then it begins with this phrase, there comes a moment when the penny drops. Now for those of you who aren't American or English or Australian, the phrase, the penny drops, refers to a time when suddenly something is discovered or realized about reality. So when the penny drops, suddenly something you hadn't figured out becomes clear to you. And the article, of course, um, refers to the heat wave this summer in Europe and in Britain and in North America. And it's a harbinger, they say, of global warming. Okay, and facts say that it will soon make some parts of the world so uninhabitable they'll be too hot to live in. And of course, just two weeks ago, it reached 50 degrees centigrade. For us Americans, that's 122 Fahrenheit. And they closed all the businesses in Iraq because nobody could go to work in that heat. Now, 
Maybe they're right. But I can guarantee you no secular news magazine will ever suggest that we consider global warming God's judgment. That doesn't mean they're right. It behooves those who are followers of Jesus to at least consider the signs of the times. There are several other judgments abroad in the land. In fact, if you're familiar with the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 6, as I look around, it seems like they have been released. The white horse of conquest, think about Russia, China, the renewing of nuclear war, um, the intentions of Iran, the red horse of murder and war, war is obvious, but we sometimes have got so inured, used to shootings in Europe, massive shootings, numbers of them in America, and last night those who were attacked at the Wailing Wall. And the black horse of famine, which is now advancing across North Africa. And given the drought in America and Europe, will no doubt, will no doubt curb the food supply for all of us. And finally, the pale horse of pestilence and death, which we've seen in COVID and now monkeypox. It, it does seem like there are some signs of the times. They're uncomfortable to think about, and they're uncomfortable more when we turn to the text that the Lord, down through history, has, has given to his people when they needed to see and prepare for or repent from justice coming. From the words from Isaiah we heard, which were, were offered 700 years before Jesus, to the ones we heard from him about being ready and about what he would bring at a time when the world ends, to the psalmist who was reflecting on what had happened in the judgment that fell when Israel was banished and exiled to Babylon. And then finally, difficult but then hopeful news from the book of Hebrews. We're, we're going to cover them all today, in part at least, because they all have a common message that I think is extraordinarily helpful for our time. If I could put that idea into a single sentence, it would go something like this. Disciples of Jesus must prepare themselves for the coming anguish of God's judgment. Amen. Say that again. Disciples of Jesus must prepare themselves for the coming anguish of God's judgment. Just a couple words about sermons. Number one, I'm not interested in giving you a date or tying it up to everything in history. Jesus tells us not to do that, that only the Father knows. But he does tell us to be alert and aware, which is what we'll do today, I hope. One other thing, uh, for those of you who are visiting, our, our, uh, the big word is hermeneutic. Our philosophy of preaching here is that we look at the text, we try to understand what it was saying to the people for whom it was written, and what lesson they were to take from it, and then from there, apply it to ourselves in the way it, it, it can be applied properly. So that's what I'm going to try to do today. But sometimes preachers forget to tell listeners in a service that this is not a one-person job. All of you who are followers of Jesus are, are part of a holy priesthood. And you've been given the Holy Spirit 
to show you the truth of his word and the truth of what he's doing in your life. And so it's up to you to test what I say because you're not listening to a perfect preacher. You're just listening to someone who struggled with these words from the Lord, tried to apply them to himself, and then see how that can apply to all of us. So with that word, um, take your Bibles and, uh, and scroll to Isaiah 5. Or if you're old like me, you can actually turn there. <laughs> we're going to be relying a bit on the text today. I'm going to touch on several verses, and we'll go quite quickly, or else, or else this will be a one-hour sermon. Um, Isaiah could be called the poet-prophet. He paints a word picture that we heard read, and, but he begins it by saying, I'm using a little different version than we read, um, my beloved, Isaiah says in verse 1 of chapter 5, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. The beloved is God. The vineyard, in this case, were the Jewish people. So it's a word picture of a physical reality. In verse 2, he describes the care the Lord has lavished on his vineyard. Actually, it goes beyond verse 2. So he got choice vines. He built a watchtower to keep it safe. He hewed a vat out of stone, out of the rock of this land. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Okay, how many of you have ever tasted a wild grape? It sets your teeth on edge, right? The sourness, of course, the symbol of sin in this text. And then, then Isaiah puts the Lord, uh, has the Lord, takes the words of the Lord and speaks them directly to the people on the Lord's behalf, using this rhetorical question. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, judge between me and my vineyard. You see what he's forcing the, the Jewish people to do? What more could I have done, he asks again. And then he says, if you don't return to me, the hedge that I built around the vineyard, and sometimes he calls it a wall to protect it from the wild animals and all the things that can go wrong, I'm going to knock it down. Now, there's a critically important lesson there about judgment. And that is, in most cases, the judgment of God is nothing more than the removal of his protection. Let me say that again. Since the fall of men, the world, like the one around us now, is evil. People who are not disciples of God live in an evil world, and they're selfish. That's what they are. That's what we all were. And a selfish world will inevitably become an evil world. So when people become the people of God, the, Israel, the Israelites choosing to follow the Lord who had, who had lifted them up and made them a people, or those of us who are believers who choose to follow Jesus and through him are grafted onto that root of Jesse and reconciled to God the Father, however we, we became the people of God, when we failed him, and he can no longer live among us because we have defiled him or rejected him or not invited him in, all he has to do is remove his protecting hand around us. He doesn't have to judge. He doesn't have to do much because we and the world will take care of it ourselves. Now the point of the text for its original listeners or readers, uh, as far as what it did for them, 
Well, frankly, the penny didn't drop. We're now a hundred years before Israel was taken into captivity, and for a hundred years this message was repeated louder and louder, stronger and stronger, and still it didn't drop. Until, either in Babylon or after returning, one Israelite wrote a psalm that we heard this morning, and clearly for that Jewish person, the penny had dropped, because you see the Lord had removed the last piece of the hedge. Nebuchadnezzar's armies had run over the city and the nation, taken it in, into captivity, destroyed the first temple, and he writes in verse 1, you needn't turn there, we'll go quickly. Restore us again, O God, verse 1. Verse 5, how long will you be angry with your people? Verse 8, repeats this same image. You brought a vine out of Egypt when it had taken root in the land. Now you've broken down its hedge, verse 12. Turn again, O God, look down, be merciful. Visit the vine. Oh, let us live, and now we're ready to say, let us live and we shall call upon your name. Because the last hundred years before that exile was what? Everybody doing what they wanted to do themselves selfishly and trying to add God on to it. It would be a fair question for you to ask, well, since Jesus comes, has come, could this, this sort of judgment possibly apply to us? It was the Old Testament after all. It was the blood sacrifice in the temple. We know that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus to be merciful, their sins will be forgiven. He'll make them righteous. Well, I wish I could say we got off the hook. But if you turn with me to Luke 12, which you've already heard just a moment ago, I suspect you know what the answer really is. Um, I want to go first to... Uh, to verse 54. Jesus, we don't know where he is in Jerusalem, but he's in Jerusalem at this time. And he's talking to a crowd of people, not any specific group, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, but everybody. Now, we have to make an assumption here. He's in Israel in the first century, and he, might, he works and lives among the Jews as a rabbi, so he's talking to Jews. So people who at least consider themselves to be the people of God in the first century when all the world around them was pagan. And he says to them, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there'll be scorching heat, and it happens. Now I, as you can tell from my accent, I'm an American. I grew up at the beginning of the plains of Western America. Uh, the plains in America start in Ohio, if you know where that is, and they go all the way to the Rocky Mountains. The place where I lived, if you could manage to get up on a ladder and go out in the country, there would be cornfields this time of year as far as the eye could see, maize fields in European. And uh, one of the, my special memories about August was they were suffocatingly hot days with humidity like Tel Aviv or the Galilee. And there'd be days when the wind would stop and you would, you'd swear you were going to suffocate from the humidity and the heat and then later in the afternoon, you'd look off in the distance, and you could look a long way off in the distance, and there'd be these towering black clouds, almost uh, 50,000 feet, 2,000, 3,000 meters in the air. 
coal black, and that'd be sparkling with the lightning, but far off, couldn't hear a thing. And then they'd start to move closer like a great dark army. And then you'd hear the thunder, and it would roll out in front of them across the plains towards where you were standing. And then, all of a sudden, the front would come through, and the temperature would drop 20 degrees, and a cool wind would blow toward you, followed by a few raindrops, and then finally a torrent. Now, all of us have memories like the ones that Jesus is referring to, don't we? If we live here, we know that if there's a cloud in July, don't worry about it, it's not going to rain. There's a bunch of clouds and they're dark in November, finally it's raining, thank heavens, and that may last till February or March. But if the wind comes from the south, there's a hot wind from the Negev. If it comes from the Judean desert from the east, it's hotter, and it's accompanied by a muddy rain. Now, I rehearse all this because what Jesus says next is kind of confusing. He says, you can do this, you hypocrites. What's hypocritical about the weather? I mean, about liking the weather. I grew up in the country. My wife always accuses me of talking about the weather too much. Jesus was making a point that this people who were God's own, the ones who were supposed to be most tuned to the times they were living in and their spiritual importance, were preoccupied with things like the weather and their houses and their comfort, or the trouble with the Romans, or whatever it was. There were three things they were missing, not reading the signs of the times. One was they didn't recognize him. They saw his signs and his miracles, they heard his teaching, they followed him, they wanted healing, but they couldn't see who he was, the Messiah of Israel and the Son of God. Secondly, they were hypocrites because they couldn't see spiritual signs, only temporal ones, like I just mentioned. They couldn't hear the drumbeat already coming towards them, that in just 40 years, the Romans would destroy the temple again, knock down the walls of the city again, the same judgment that their forefathers had undergone, they were going to undergo too because they were not walking with the Lord and listening to the signs he was giving them. And finally, they didn't link it, as we heard in the following verses, which I'll read in a moment, to the final accounting. You see, every, every Jewish person, usually, because of the oppression they were under, looked forward to God's judgment, which they believed because of Malachi, Micah, would be back here in the valley. That's why all those Jewish graves line the hillside, so they'll be present when the Lord comes and they're resurrected. But that's where judgment was supposed to happen, and God was going to make thing right, things right for us, all those nasty Gentiles, all those people who oppressed us, all those Russians and those Chinese or whoever is your, all those Iranians. God's going to get them, but we'll be fine. And Jesus was saying, no, you've got it wrong. He may, he may judge them, probably will. But you, you stand in judgment too, which is why he encourages them uh, with this little word picture in, in verse 57, from verse 57. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Figure it out so you can take care of it. As you go with your, your accuser before the magistrate, who's the magistrate? Magistrate is God the judge. We know now that will be Jesus. If you don't make it right with him on the way, you're going to lose your case. 
It was a call to repentance, to avoid the judgment that was coming. So it was all these three things that Jesus was referring to, uh, implying, I think, when he called them hypocrites. Now, all of the texts that surround this one that we got to read today, which we don't have time to go to, but I'll touch on quickly. Last week's gospel, which talked about being ready for the master's return. Those of you who are here will remember that. You all preached it. Today's reading from verse 49, where Jesus describes himself as the great divider of people. Is there any question in your mind he has become the great divider of people in the world around us? And then in verses 57 to 59 that I just quoted, you know, be ready when you stand before God the judge. All of these things, all of these things point to what? The final windup of this world and how it's going to look. And my concern for for us looking at it is that we may be in a time where the judgment can be turned back by repentance or maybe not. But my great fear is that disciples of Jesus, which is what I hope we are, and if we're not, please come see me. If we're disciples of Jesus, we have lived in such comfortable times, we may not be ready for what lies ahead. And we need to get ready, lest we fail in the face of the challenge. So I think the formula for that, which is, which is much, um, much more comfortable, lies in Hebrews 11, which we'll go to in just a moment if you want to reach it. I, this week I was reminded of a, when I was reading Isaiah and I was trying to figure out when did it fall in Israel's history and realized it was nearly 120 years before before Nebuchadnezzar finally destroyed the city. Remember um, a poem that used to be famous by Irish Christian poet William Butler Yeats. And I think for moderns, this was just a hundred years before now, 1919 at the end of World War I. And he wrote, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, listen, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed on the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best people lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Is it a prophecy for our times or not? And then he goes on, surely some revelation is at hand, Surely the second coming is at hand, the second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image of spiritus mundi, which is the spirit of the world, comes upon me, and I see the troubles. And he goes on to talk about the lion slouching across the desert sands towards Jerusalem. And the lion here is not the lion of Judah. It's the lion who seeks to devour our souls. So he says there will come a time when the enemy is abroad in the land, in the world, and the spirit of the world will control the age. So what do we do? Hebrews 11. I'm going to skip to the, uh, for the sake of time, which I'm sure you'll be happy I do. We'll skip to verse um, 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging, chains, imprisonment. 
They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy because of their goodness, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Okay, just so we don't miss what was said. All of those who suffered in that period before Jesus for his name continued to trust his promise that someday their hope of resurrection and redemption would be realized. We saw it come in Jesus, but now in some ways those of us who are centuries down the line have the same issue. Do we trust him? Do we trust his character? Or at the first sign of personal trouble do we say, why is God doing this to me? Why is he allowing this to happen? When in fact, all he may be doing is removing the hedge of protection. This won't be true in all cases. I'm not making some grand statement except to say we need to be thinking and discerning about the times we live in. But that's just the bad news. The good news is this, these fabulous two verses in Hebrews that shows how we deal with those kind of times when they come. Hence, the word therefore at the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, because of all of these witnesses, those who triumphed and especially those who suffered, how do we live? How do we cope? Well, we look at them and then we do what they did. We lay aside every sin and every encumbrance. They're two different things. All of us who worship here regularly there's kind of a mantra among us preachers here. The, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of Jesus, is the only God who wants to live among his people, but he can't do that unless there are holy people like himself. He tells us so in Exodus, be holy like I'm holy. And he makes the way for us to be holy through his Son and before through the sacrifices and, and repentance. There's always repentance for sin in the whole Bible. Okay, if we now find ourselves nurturing sin, it's impossible for God to live among us or to live within us. It weakens our community of faith. So that's on the one hand. On the other are encumbrances. An example of an encumbrance is having to check the news on your cell phone 10, 15 times a day. I just had my grandkids here. It drove me crazy the number of games they wanted to play and how angry they got with me when I wouldn't let them do it all the time. I said, let's go, let's go to the Mount of Olives. Oh, I'm too tired. <laughs> but you know, many of us have become like that too. We've got so many things we're involved in that are important to us, our education, our house, our portfolio. I don't know, you pick it. Like I said, I'm not interested in being passionate towards you and I'm not your judge. With you, I feel the judgment of the times. And so if we set aside sin and we set aside encumbrances, that means just that we feel like we're in better shape, but it doesn't get us through this, does it? How do we get through it? And that's where fixing our eyes on Jesus, the one who authored or pioneered our faith, reconciled us to God the Father, gave us eternal hope. It's when we are reconciled to him 
and we're watching him, by which we do a dozen different ways that you know, study, prayer, fellowship, and frankly asking the Holy Spirit to help us change who we are into something more like him every day. When we do those things, what happens around us, we will begin to realize is merely temporary till we cross into his full presence one day. Now for me, I mean most of you, about the same age as my oldest grandchild. Most of you, not all of you. I know that day's not far off. My end times are here. Your end times may, let, may be a little bit in the future. But they won't matter if your eyes are on him. If you've laid aside every sin and every encumbrance, you'll live through all of that triumphantly to meet him on the far shore. But you have to be ready. And that means, if necessary, you've got to toughen up spiritually. First we repent, and maybe he'll turn back the tide this time for a while. But even if we do, we can be secure in our own salvation. But we can't be sure we won't have to live through the trials that lie ahead. So my question for myself and for you is, are you ready?